Hey everyone, before we start, there are a couple ways you can support the show. If you want some of our music, you can go to iTunes and purchase Between Us, a psychotherapy podcast, original soundtrack. It's a long title, but we're proud of the music, and if you like the vibe of the show, you'd like the soundtrack as well. Or you can go to patreon.com slash between us. There aren't a lot of prizes there for your support, but we have decided to keep posting some kind of monthly content for the people who support us on Patreon, even during the off-season. Do either of these things and help us do this labor of love. Thanks. Well, my chapter is called Sperm Whales and Other Unruly Things. Interesting. It's about being, um, it's about my childhood in fifth grade and being the student who acts up and why that was a theme. And so it takes me from being an act, a student who acted out, class clown, through my analytic training. This is one of the reasons we get along. You and me, yeah. I was... Oh, you were the class clown. I, I wasn't a class clown, but I got in trouble a lot. Me too. Counselor? Counselor? Is that you? Counselor? I'm out. Come out wherever you are. I ain't no white trash piece of shit. I'm better than you all. How can I learn you? How can I read you? How can I thank you? And I can out-philosophize you. And I'm going to outlast you. It's going to take a hell of a lot more than that, counselor, to prove you're better than me. I am like God and God like me. I am as large as God. He is as small as I. He cannot above me nor I. Beneath him, me. Salasius, 17th century. Counselor, could you be there? I wonder if you're here. This is Between Us. I'm John Totten. Were you a writer before you were in this field? Uh, yeah, uh-huh, but not like writer with a capital W. I yeah. was a teacher uh, before I was teacher? in the field. A fourth grade teacher. Oh, okay. So can we do a little origin story? Sure. Are you a psychoanalyst? Yes. What brought you to the field and to psychoanalytic training? How many of us who are therapists like to hide behind our status? How would we feel if we didn't have the option? 20 years from now, our field will be populated by people who have mostly grown up in the internet era where our lives are documented and searchable. If you work outside of a large city, you might already know what it's like for your life to intersect with the lives of your clients in awkward ways. For your clients to have access to what you're like in the grocery store and with your family. I'm still uncomfortable with it, which is not great for a therapist who also likes to make music and art and have some of it be public. The first time I ever had a client say that they had Googled my music, I cringed so hard I can still feel it seven years later. Our guest today is well experienced with the intimate boundaries that must exist when a therapist lives among their patients and they see each other out in the world. 
14 years ago, Rachel Newcomb moved from Manhattan to Orcas Island, Washington, an island with a population of about 5,000. She's a psychoanalyst and a writer, and we met up on one of her trips to Seattle to discuss the ethics of intersecting lives, consultation, and also Rachel was sure to get a few long answers out of me as well. Here she is. So I was a fourth grade teacher in Mm -hmm. New York, truly, madly, deeply loved teaching. Mm -hmm. But I knew that I wanted, and I worked at a great private school, could do whatever I wanted curriculum-wise, absolutely loved it. But I I was so young, Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to do something else, and I wanted to go to social work school, and I fell in love with community organizing and casework. Mm-hmm. and then got a job um, at Mount Sinai Hospital working in the neonatal intensive care unit. Loved that. And then I knew I wanted to be an analyst. Mm-hmm. And so that's how my psychoanalytic training started. And I did Pete's cardiology in the NICU, mm-hmm. but um, I actually have a lyrical piece I wrote called The Weight of Dead Babies because mm-hmm. part of my job, if a baby died, well, the parents were not there that night sometimes I would have to go to the morgue and help prepare the baby so the parents who wanted to hold it or say goodbye do you still have it? Mm -hmm. I love every single job I had Mm -hmm. it almost feels like one led to another and what brought you to Seattle? I was waiting for that question (laughs) an amicable divorce and my partner lived here okay Mm -hmm. you moved to Seattle I moved to Orcas Island you moved straight from New York to Orcas mm-hmm. Island. From one island to the next. That's a fascinating change because they're both islands and they're both in corners of the country. Exactly. But they're very different. And they're both almost the same size square footage. Doesn't seem like the same size. Well, because one's, yeah. So had you ever lived in anywhere that rural before? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. What was that change like? Enormous. Enormous. And how long have you been on Orcas Island? It'll be 14, starting my 14th year, the winter solstice. Mm-hmm. So I left Manhattan the night of the winter solstice. Wow. And were you an analyst when you... Mm-hmm. And so you also moved to business mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. To a tiny town mm-hmm. on an island. So because I was starting a practice, I had been practicing in New York for about 15 years, and I arrived on Orcas not knowing one therapist or even if there were analysts. The first thing I did when I got there is very first stop was to the library to get a library card. (laughs) And then that evening I was reading the local paper, and it said there was this writing group a monthly writing group at the library, and this woman called Joellen if you have um, questions. So I called Joellen, and because Orcas is small, we met it for coffee at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out she's a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. She's older than me. And one thing led to another. We're just having this rambling conversation, and she says, um, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm just going off in a million different directions and I said sorry I feel so at home she was my very first friend and is still my best friend up there and the other thing I did was go through the yellow pages look up every therapist 
and telephoned each one and asked if I could go meet them. Because, you know, I was 46. Uh-huh. How the hell am I going to start a private practice? And I know I had just come from this rich life in New York. I know I loved writing groups, reading groups. So the very first person I went to invited me to her house. And she was a Jungian analyst. And as we're sitting there talking and having tea, a llama walks in her front yard. <laughs> exactly. I think I was there for almost three hours, and I said, would you be interested in doing a study group? And she said, you know what? I've been a little complacent. I would absolutely love that. So we started this study group. This was in January of 2006. I absolutely adored her, Gay Williams. And six months later, she died. Not that I lost a person, but in a way the morning of Manhattan and then here I make this really good analyst friend and she died so it was it was hard so the adjustment was hard and she welcomed me with open arms I adored her it's such a huge change to go through mm-hmm. uh, having come here myself from a more rural place what brought you to Seattle a girlfriend that I'm no longer with mm-hmm. and we were together for five years and I convinced my brothers to follow me. <laughs> and so then when the relationship ended, I still I had more family and community here mm-hmm. than anywhere else, really. So. so how did you know you wanted to go to grad school at Seattle School? That's a good question. Uh, I spent my 20s working in the music industry in different capacities, mm-hmm. both as a performer, but also in retail and wholesale and distribution and... I was even a roadie well, for one band mainly. And I was like 26 and mm-hmm. looking at my coworkers in a record store, Easy Street Records in West in Seattle. In West Seattle, yeah. yeah. And I was like, I don't want to be doing this mm-hmm. forever. And so I started looking into graduate school. I was interested in theology mm-hmm. and mainly writing about it. I knew I didn't want to work in a church. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what my beliefs were really either, but I was interested in the different palette, you mm-hmm. know, the palette of different theologies. And and so I went to Seattle School. I had been writing for a journal that was sponsored by Seattle School. Which journal? The other journal. Oh, okay. And I had been writing like film and music mm-hmm. articles for them, and but everybody I met through the journal was really smart. Mm-hmm. And so I started at the Seattle School as a a master's in divinity, Mm -hmm. and it took about three months for me to realize that I was in the wrong program. Mm -hmm. And so by the second semester, I had changed. So you've been in private practice for how long? It was pretty gradual. So I started it while I was in community mental health. Mm -hmm. I worked in several different community clinics from 2012 to 2016 and went full-time here Mm -hmm. in 2016. Mm -hmm. So what is it like for you in terms of meeting colleagues? And I'm always interested when people graduate, how they create community. You know, my therapist told me recently, you should have a guest who turns the mic back on you sometime. And I'm I'm laughing inside that you're asking me these questions because I just think it's really hard for us to be real with each other. When you say be real with each other, like, I think of the list of therapists that I would call to go to happy hour after a long week. 
and it's not that long. I want it to be longer. Like I want there to be some hope in that. Mm-hmm. It's just really hard to connect with us sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm probably the same way for some people. Mm-hmm. And so your experience on Orcas Island is really interesting to me mm-hmm. because it's, I think it's something that is easy to miss out on mm-hmm. in our field. Being with colleagues is like so important to me. So yeah. that's why I got that. It sounds so corny, but that's why I did that. Well, and it's such a contradiction, too, to, I mean, to hear that you have these, and to move to Orcas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bind that mm-hmm. you got put in. Mm-hmm. I've been to a lot of beautiful places in my life, but Orcas Island is one of my favorites. It's a member of our San Juan Islands, which are quite literally in the northwestern corner of the country, so much so that in the mid-1800s they were often the subject of border disputes between Britain and the U.S. In fact, in 1859, there was a lesser-known war over the San Juans, called the Pig War, because its only casualty was a pig, owned by one of the residents. The feeling that I have when I go there is that I'm on the edge of the world. I try to go there at least once a year to reset. So when I found out that Rachel lived there and practiced there, I was intrigued. So after about four years, two people in my study group Janice and Mary and myself, we put in a proposal for uh, the APA. The conference was in San Diego, and it was called No Place to Hide, Hmm. doing psychotherapy in a small rural community. And the three of us all came from cities. Hmm. So just what the change of that was, like you can't even imagine the things you have to take into consideration that you don't have to in Manhattan or Seattle. And recently I was telling my friend from Manhattan, who's been in the field a long time, it's not something I would have ever chosen to have to confront, but having to confront it, it has changed me in the best possible way. So can you give me an example? Mm-hmm. So I like to exercise. Mm-hmm. I like to go to the gym. Mm-hmm. I used to go to the Equinox Gym in Manhattan. So I, I went to this really tiny gym And the whole reason we started wanting to put in that proposal, like being semi-disrobed in the gym with somebody I see, running into people all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they could see, they see me with my daughter. They'll see me. I was president of the library board. So constantly having to maneuver those relationships with the utmost respect, what party I'll go to or not going into like a restaurant and if somebody I see could be my weight person or somebody at one table over could be somebody I see. So it's this real intimate, movable boundary that I developed. And then the whole question of, but what are they seeing anyhow? When I was in New York, if I ran across the street for a cup of coffee and maybe saw a patient, like, oh my God. But (laughs) now it's like, you can't not. No, we run the same half marathons. We, you know, one time carpooled. It's like, but this intimate, intimate boundary. So it's been good for me. 
And so I guess I'm curious, the one example you mentioned, which I felt a spike of anxiety is what about if there is a dinner party? Like, well, see, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right expression. Being somebody, you know, I don't love parties. Yeah. So it's a great excuse for my partner. <laughs> yeah. I'll say, oh, I don't know if I want to go to that party. But I've been at play openings during intermission. You, it's just be, you're just, just really respectful. Right. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a thought exercise that I go to sometimes in ethical discussions when we talk about the crossing over of lives I think well if we were doing therapy in Wyoming somewhere it wouldn't really be an option it's not an option but I guess the part I want to stress there's still such great boundaries Hmm. it's not loosey goosey because you just learn you share this island together right and you think about those boundaries not necessarily something concrete as I'm not going to enter your space geographically mm-hmm. but as something more abstract mm-hmm. as in what I'll do when we do enter the space geographically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then silly things like you know I'm tired if I'm in the grocery store say I looking what I have in my grocery cart like that's so personal like little things like that and then to be waiting on the checkout line like what if I got a frozen pizza and three heads of broccoli I mean just that everything's there to be seen and then the next session someone says how was the pizza well did you like <laughs> may- maybe yeah 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> or how did you like that play or what did you think of this speaker or how's it going on the library expansion but seldom you know if that's asked and then you know, you both know the same thing, but it's not like you have any huge conversation about it. You you meet people, like, but it does take a while to what kind of people you're interested in. Did you want to start a group? Like, what if there were therapists or musicians? Mm-hmm. But sometimes if it's not there, starting it. How does the your field and your social scene intersect now? Do you mostly hang out with therapists or rarely? or Mostly. Mostly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Almost 99.9%. And people who aren't therapists, (laughs) who aren't therapists like my friend Joellen, when she was in Scarsdale, New York, she was a guidance counselor. It's like I would say they're all in a similar field. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do find that to be true. I gravitate towards helping professionals, and my wife is a nurse. How did you meet your wife? Here? Through friends. Mm -hmm. One of my oldest friends in Seattle ended up marrying one of her first friends in Seattle and so we were just around each Mm -hmm. other a lot and we were friends for a long time before I got some shit together and decided that she would be really good for me and then it took some convincing and and then we finally got together You know, every time I tell someone that I don't hang out with that many therapists, I immediately think of about five people that I hang out with all the time who are other therapists. It's just that talking about therapy doesn't happen as much in those relationships. So maybe there's something to that formula that works really well for me. But when I think of my closest friends in Seattle, they are people whose lives center more around creativity, musicians and filmmakers. 
And that's probably why I enjoy talking to Rachel. I think she doesn't think that those lives have to be separate, our creative life and our therapeutic life. I think she gives the creative part of herself a lot of real estate. And also, she wasn't afraid in our talk to be curious about me, which gave this conversation a feeling of mutuality, and it didn't seem like an interview as much. I cut a lot out of this discussion, because we spent a lot of time talking about our weekend plans and specific classes we were taking. But in that, it felt like we were just two people who were part of the same small community. I considered deleting a lot of my answers to her questions, but I thought twice and decided that this conversation should feel like a small town conversation. Have you felt included or not invited or? Huh. I don't, I think it's maybe, it might be more me than everyone else, but I don't necessarily feel like I fit in. Do any of us? (laughs) No. Exactly. Like, a lot of people in our field encounter me with a degree of suspicion. You? Yeah, that I have to overcome. Prior to the Me Too movement? Yes. Yeah. Is it the arts? Yeah, maybe, and just the way I present myself. My first supervisor and under and the graduate internship told me when I first met you I was like annoyed that they assigned me to you because you just seemed like you didn't give a shit and now that I know you I realize that you you do give a shit about a lot of things and that you care a lot you it just doesn't show on your face all the time mm-hmm. my supervisor back then said something really interesting and that was your blank expression is easy for clients to project onto. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's because I don't experience you as having a blank expression. <laughs> well, maybe that's why I wanted to interview you and, yeah. and why you seem like a nice person. Yeah, you know, it's so I so it's so tricky how who we gravitate toward, um, what kind of leniences we give each other for mm-hmm. our differences, who's quirky, who's not. That's a lifelong thing I find in our profession. Mm-hmm. Who's inviting, who's not, how envy and competition get in the way, how envy and competition get in the way, especially when it's not talked about or owned. And what has your experience been? That's of another that? podcast. <laughs> the first thing I ever got published professionally in a professional journal, um, this kind of answers the question indirectly, was a poem. Mm-hmm. And the name of the poem was Drowning in a Sea of Psychoanalytic Writers. (laughs) And the second thing, well, not the second thing, but another big article I got published was called Beyond Redemption, Hmm. about my experience in psychoanalytic training. I'm interested in how behaviors get inevitably acted out in learning, Mm -hmm. and not that it's a bad thing, it's an inevitable thing. So not like, oh, so-and-so is a disruptive student or a bad student, but like learning by its nature is disruptive. Um, Last fall, I taught this course called uh, The Unconscious Goes to School about the intersection between psychoanalysis Mm. and education, and I just love how the two go together. Mm. Not that they're separate. I think teaching is everything. I like how we learn. Right. Like, how does a person learn? But how do you learn psychoanalysis? How crucial that is. How do we teach? 
And how do we teach? Do we do it well? Who's the we? That's everybody's so different. Yeah. Because some of the best teachers and most memorable teachers I've had, both in education and psychoanalysis, have this intense interest in how a person thinks Hmm. and are able to tolerate anxieties and not knowing and no matter how smart somebody is, it's not about being the expert. It's like going on this journey. How does a person learn? But... That's not my experience of our colleagues. Well, I mean, let's we talk. Be, we want to be experts. Do, have you read Adam Phillips' book, Terrors and Experts? No. It's the best. I haven't read enough. You would love it. Yeah. It's the whole thing. What's an expert? I love his that particular book as it talks about that. Yeah. So, I mean, this is the longest we've ever talked. Yeah. And I feel like you're antithetical to like what I am frustrated with. That is the the sweetest compliment. (laughs) Because, uh, first of all, we've been talking for almost an hour, and I feel like you've been really interested in me, which is not the format we usually take, but I'm... How could I not? (laughs) No, I am very... (laughs) But also that, like, that idea of... I don't know. Say it. Just that idea of, like, deconstructing the idea of expertise... So we kind of make a topic shift here to start talking about consultation and how it happens. And I wanted to provide some context. If you aren't a therapist, you should know that your therapist should be working very hard at making sure their practice isn't totally unaccountable and without professional support. And this often means bringing cases of theirs to a supervisor or a consultant. And sometimes it even means bringing in a verbatim or a script of a session to get feedback. And one of my experiences is that in these times, it can often feel like we're parsing the words of the script and not the larger dynamics at play. Rachel has some interesting ideas on this. I feel like we, we want to matter and so let's say you're in a consultation and someone says something and you think I react to, to what they said to their client and the need for me to matter comes out as, why did you say that? I can't, you mean, you mean if somebody said it like that? Yeah, well, it happens. It's happened to me and then I start to feel... When you're questioned like that, like, why did you say that? Yeah. See, I'm thinking, like, why did the person say, why did you say it like that? Totally. And that's where I go to is like, they want to matter. Like they want... Or are they anxious? Like matter how? Because if you say something Mm -hmm. to your patient and I get anxious, so I'll be having this conversation with myself, why am I anxious? Like tell me how you, you know, structured it like that or why you're thinking like that or, Mm -hmm. oh my God, I went, you know, whatever. I wouldn't right. disown my anxiety. And I'm not saying that person did, but yeah. But again, that's what I'm talking about, the teaching. Right. Like, that comes from just, a teaching perspective. I think. Yeah. Supervision or consultation. Can you have stuff to offer your consultant or your supervisor? See, my big thing is like, you know, when we go to conferences and it's often the person who's been in the field for a long time, the so-called the senior analyst or the senior therapist, often does a presentation 
with somebody who hasn't been in the field. I would love to see, and I hope this doesn't sound provocative, but what would happen if somebody sorted out six years of the field, did a supervision with somebody who had been in the field like almost 30 years, like me? Because it gives the message that somebody who hasn't been in that long might not have something to offer somebody who has. And of course, the longer we're in, the more we learn. Well, I think that's very progressive and anxious for people. And I think it's progressive in that, like, well, eventually the person who's been out six years is going to have to kind of be the elder states person in the field, right? But what would that even look like? Like, say you and I are at a conference, Mm -hmm. and you had the opportunity to consult with me on a case. Like, I presented (laughs) a case to you. Well, first of all, I wouldn't present a case because of privacy and everything, but, but what would it be like? Like, say we did. Say we, what, like, what do you even imagine? I feel like I would, and maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of, there's a meta level in that you're asking me so many questions oh. as well in this interview. Like, I feel like, well, what do I have to offer this person? Which I know is silly because we think about what we have to offer in terms of years, and we shouldn't. We should think about it in terms of subjectivity mm-hmm. and the fact that I'm just someone different with a different perspective. Mm -hmm. We could click, we could not click, you could focus in on something that I don't even know I'm doing. Hmm. I mean, you know, it's entering in that conversation. That's Hmm. the learning, when you enter into the conversation. It's like actual mutuality and reciprocity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When I consult with somebody, like, I feel squeamish about the word supervision, although I know it's supervision when somebody needs to get their licensure. Mm -hmm. But there is that exchange. There should be that exchange. When I graduated my institute in New York, we had to do a paper as part of graduation. And my paper was supervision, a structure to surrender. Because I feel when that could happen is when learning can happen. I like that word a lot. Supervision or surrender. Surrender. You know, especially working with men who are powerful and straight white males, we talk about that a lot because I think what they're holding on to so tenuously is their mm-hmm. anxious grip on pa- their power and like and their relationships, wanting to hold on to the image of themselves and the ideals that they project and the idea of surrendering mm-hmm. being like letting go of the mm-hmm. idealized self and... Mm-hmm especially around aging and things mm-hmm. like that. Like, mm-hmm. Do you have male clients older than you, younger than you, both? Both. Yeah, it ranges from about 25 to 50. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the best mistakes I ever made, <laughs> Yeah. and I made it twice. So in New York, I had a little bit of break, and I needed to deposit my checks at the end of the month from my patients. And I also needed to go to the post office. So in this hand, I have all my checks for Chase Bank. Mm -hmm. And in this hand, I have my letters and I have a small amount of time. I run to the corner and I open the mailbox and put in all my checks. And (laughs) panicked, absolutely panicked. Like, this is like no place to hide. So like, I'm going to get written up. I'm going to go to jail. 
I'm going to, I'll never be an analyst again. Cause what would the, the, because like you're breaking confidentiality? Or? All my patients' checks with their names on them are just free-floating in right. some mailbox. Right. And then I ran, I remember, to the post office and probably was a hysterical Nelly. But for whatever reason, they, the postmaster got the envelope and saved it for me. But it was a week later, and I had to tell all my patients, and I was so nervous. Every single one of them was no big deal. One of them laughed, and I said, what? Oh, it makes me feel better that you do things like that. And then I did the exact same thing a year later, twice. But it's like, how embarrassing. (laughs) How freaking embarrassing. That reminds me of a similar one. What did you do? (laughs) I was working on a album with a with my band, and we were we we were like rehearsing songs, and this is just really embarrassing. I would bring my iPhone to rehearsal, and I would record just a live version of the songs, and I would go home after rehearsal, and I would email everyone what I recorded on a you know on a mass email. So Your could, musician friends. Yeah, yeah. The, the guys who were playing yeah. with me. And I had a client who had the same first name as, as the one musician. of the musicians. And it shouldn't have shown up in my personal email contacts. I don't know why it did. This is making It made me hate technology because it was on my phone or something mm-hmm. like that. But I just really quickly went home took the recording of the songs and emailed it to four guys and then about an hour later I went back and looked at the email to see if anybody had responded and I looked at the first name, the second name, the third name and the fourth name was my client and not my bandmate. So you sent your client music? I sent my client music but on top of that everybody else could see the, the name that didn't belong. Name on the email oh, chain. Oh, it's very it's similar. Yeah. It is similar. Yeah. And I, I thought that you sent the musicians a recorded session. Well, oh, patient. no, that would yeah, have been yeah. really bad. Yeah. I know. So it's a very similar thing. The only thing the only reason that that would have been better is that I know all of them really well. They know what I do for a living. That part was fine cuz I immediately texted, well it wasn't fine, but it, no. I mitigated it. Yeah. I texted all of them and I said there's a there's a person on the email chain that really shouldn't be on there. Can you delete all of those emails? Right. And I got pretty prompt responses from all Stuff of them. Stuff like this happened. It said it's deleted. The embarrassing part was emailing my client mm-hmm. and saying, you just got what you're going to think is a really strange email from me. And how did the um, person... He, he was fine. He said, don't worry about it. It's deleted. I didn't listen to it. And you and I cannot be the only ones that this stuff happens to. No. It's just how willing are we to talk about stuff like this. And so this all is stuff that you've been wrestling with since moving to Orcus, because it's kind of like that same. But but I'm so, I cannot believe sitting here that I'm really not that uptight anymore. And that's euphoric. That's absolutely euphoric. There's freedom in that. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what it's helped me grow. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they going to see? They're going to see me. Mm-hmm. Me out and doing stuff. Me going to a poetry reading. Me, maybe, who knows? They see me in ways that maybe I don't even know they're seeing me. 
And do you ever have patients that have a hard time with that? I don't think so, because it's like we grow together. Right, and it's part of their cultural perspective. I mean, Going they live to on uh, a board meeting once and in another city flying, and a patient was two seats, the row in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> People in the city would really feel anxious about this. I think so. What do you think? I think I would. Yeah, right? Until we have to get used to it. What kind of music are you involved with, or is your band? It's just rock music, mm-hmm. and I've always pl- kind of randomly played different things. My mm-hmm. degrees in jazz, mm-hmm. and so that's more hobby these days. Mm-hmm. Any jazz stuff, but I mean, originally when I moved here, I was like 22, and it became my social scene. Mm-hmm. And so I would say I hang out with more artists and musicians mm-hmm. than I do with therapists. But they have their special handshakes and secret dances that they do too every group right yeah Mm -hmm. that's why I like the groups that are more inclusive Mm -hmm. quirky everybody's individuality can be celebrated yeah yeah what is the we talked a little bit on that episode but I'm interested in your opinion the connection between poetry and psychoanalysis I think the language yeah I think the unconscious language when words come out or ideas come out, some of them are fragments. Mm-hmm. Some of them have never been thought of before when you just nail it. I think that was my attraction to it as well. The, right? the, the idea that it requires us to be in this headspace where we're accessing multiple layers of consciousness. Absolutely. And in, it could be in our professional writing too. Because, like, is this academic enough? Is this too touchy-feely? Mm-hmm. But just opening that up, what professional writing could look like, is a real passion of mind as well. Right. Mm-hmm. There are different ways to learn. So something that's more an unconscious or poetic rendering doesn't have to be less academic. Hmm. So that's a real passion. I think that's liberating for me. I mean... You asked how this podcast came about, and yeah. it was me saying, I don't know if I want to live in academia or very much. And I'm saying academia can have elements of what makes the art so interesting. Right. It doesn't have to be dichotomous. Yeah, but we don't, But I don't feel like we think that way in this field that uh, enough. Enough. Well, first of all, what's your contribution in that manuscript? What is it on? Well, my chapter is called Sperm Whales and Other Unruly Things. Interesting. It's about my childhood in fifth grade and being the student who acts up. So it takes me from being a student who acted out, class clown, through my analytic training. This is one of the reasons we get along. You and me, yeah. I was... Oh, you were the class clown. I I wasn't a class clown, but I got in trouble a lot. Me too. It It was generally for like attitude or looks or like like I never got my check marks in what was it called did you have check marks growing yeah, up yeah, like yeah. courtesy or co yeah. not cooperation like the little grid behavior the yeah I never cards. got my behavior checks yeah yeah I think that started for me around middle school but yeah. I got sent to the office a lot mm-hmm. me too <laughs> <laughs> and so you see now seeds of psychoanalysis in that childhood experience Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is why, or 
like writing with these people were all different spectrums of having been therapists or analysts, but just how when you trust a group, how you affect each other, mm-hmm. how you show up in each other's writing and being together is just as good as whatever we produce. So it's really, really rich. It's been a treasure. Well, I like that. Yeah. That's comforting. Yeah. Well, thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Our thanks to Rachel Newcomb for joining us and to you for listening. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composes our music. We had help with editing from Chris Keene at Cutter's Cathedral in Chico, California. Support us at patreon.com slash between us, where we'll be posting content during the off-season. You can also buy our soundtrack on iTunes. It's called Between Us, a psychotherapy podcast original soundtrack. Also, find us on iTunes and leave a review if you like the show. And find us on social media. We have a Facebook now, a Twitter, an Instagram. It's a good way to stay in touch. And until next time, take care.